This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Robert Rim, Managing Editor for Arch Street Press. I'll be your host today. Today our guest is Dana Marlowe, President and Co-Founder of Accessibility Partners, whose team of consultants, test engineers, and trainers work with government agencies and organizations of all sizes to create innovative and practical accessibility solutions. Dana received her BS in Professional and Technical Communication from the Rochester Institute of Technology and her MA in Interpersonal and Organizational Communication from the University of Texas at Austin. An advocate for those with disabilities, Dana began her career as a sign language interpreter. Before co-founding Accessibility Partners in 2009, Dana worked for Keep Texas Beautiful and TCS Associates and served as Senior Vice President at Tech Access. Good to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. Well, your career seems to have consistently revolved around communication and access to technology. How did you discover those interests? Well, it started um, as a child. I was really fascinated by American Sign Language and wanted to take classes um, throughout my youth, including at camp. And uh, as a high school freshman, I kind of lobbied the local community college to let me um, let me join them in, let me join in on a college class just because I was really eager to learn the language and it kind of blossomed from there learning the sign language and becoming an interpreter and bridging the gap between people who are hearing and people who are deaf and hard of hearing and it just kind of just expanded and blossomed to all people with disabilities and wanting to really link up everybody on a fair level playing field. And what was the what was the gestation of your interest in sign language? It's not something that a lot of people would typically go to at, at a young age. Um, so when I was at a summer day camp uh, in New York, there was a, a young girl in my bunk who was hard of hearing and used sign language. And my aunt happened to, she's now retired, but she was a, an active speech pathologist who believed in integrating American Sign Language into her protocol, which back then was very cutting edge um, decades ago. And so she had taught me some sign language. So I used that to communicate with my campmate, who I really um, enjoyed, I guess, playing with. And I then begged her to teach me more. And at the time, there were books and I think maybe some like VHS tapes on sign language and um, that was where it kind of began. Hmm. And you're quite committed to those with disabilities and breaking down accessibility barriers in a larger sense. So uh, did, did that interest naturally evolve from the sign language piece or were there other experiences that led you to really broaden your, uh, your desire to make access accessible? Um, at my core, um, I'm a human rights advocate, and I think it all kind of boils down to that, is that um, I, I believe in equity and fairness for everyone, whether it's communication or technology or other areas within human rights. And 
um, it started with sign language, but then it kind of grew from there. When I, I did get a degree in sign language interpreting, and that was where I also met people who were not only deaf and hard of hearing, but deaf and blind, and started learning the practice of tactile interpreting. And I noticed that people who are deaf and blind also needed other, not only specific sign language interpreters to communicate, but other technology. And then I met more and more people who are blind and low vision and people with mobility disabilities. And it just kind of grew, my interest grew from there to just really just trying to make the world a more accessible place in a lot of different manners and platforms. And your education was intentional, wasn't it, uh, given your strong background in communication and technology services geared toward that, those ends? Yeah, so my first degree is in sign language interpreting, but I was also a little bit understanding that there's a high, a high rate of burnout as well as a high rate among sign language interpreters of injury, such as bursitis and carpal tunnel syndrome and rapid movement injury. And if you're injured as a sign language interpreter because it is a skilled profession, um, you, could be, you could be out of work for quite a while, and I wanted to make sure I had, quote, a, like a, a, a more comprehensive, robust career to, quote, fall back on. Mm -hmm. And so I went for another degree in communications and doing that at an undergraduate university that specializes in technology at, at RIT. Um, <clears throat> even a communication program uh, is infused with an enormous amount of IT studies, and so that kind of got married hand in hand. And then when I went for my master's, um, I incorporated um, some of the business school, some of the communication program at University of Texas. Uh, and I studied a lot in the areas of disability. So I just kind of uh, fused them all together. And in your experience, uh, do colleges include the disability aspect within their communication degrees because it's so central? Not at all. No, I, I really had to kind of make it my own. Um, yeah, no. I mean, there's there are more colleges and universities in the United States and a few abroad that are now incorporating different kinds of disability programming into their undergrad and graduate service offerings. But overall, um, there was a lot of malleability, and I really had to advocate for myself, saying this is what I want to study, this is what I want to do while doing their main curriculum. So a lot of my studies included looking at disability rights issues or uh, some kind of uh, component. So one of my, my master's thesis was on detecting deception, um, detecting deception between nonverbal cues, a study of deaf and hearing audiences on basically who could detect deception better. Hmm. So. It's a fascinating topic, despite the, the nature of the word deception, isn't it? <laughs> it, it certainly was. It was a lot of fun to do the, the both the quantitative and qualitative research for that one. But so I, I always try to kind of interlace the disability within the overall program of what I was studying. And what led you to make the jump from senior VP of Tech Access to starting your own accessibility and IT consulting firm? So Tech Access was an incredible company, and they started. Um, <clears throat> and they did an enormous amount of accessibility work, but over time they were looking to branch out more into support of wounded warriors and training wounded warriors, which I totally wholeheartedly support and think it's a great, um, a great line of a line of business and line of support, obviously. 
But it wasn't my passion. My passion really was looking at technology and communication and focusing heads down on making those areas usable for everyone. And so the time was right, and I just decided, okay, it's time to really buckle down and think about things. And so my husband was very supportive of hanging out my shingle and and getting it done. And so many people have the desire to do what you did but there are barriers to starting one's own business. So what are some of those barriers that you had to overcome beyond just fear of the unknown? Okay, so that was the big one. So the biggest one was the, the barrier of my own mind. Yeah. Of, because it's, it's, you're still looking, you're at the precipice, you're looking at this leap of, oh my gosh, what if I fail? What if I don't succeed? Where, where is the money going to come from? How am I going to get the clients? How am I going to do this? The, kind of like the Shel Silverstein poem, the, the what ifs, don't listen to the what ifs child. Sure, I'm um, aware of it. Yeah. Yeah, right? So, yeah. so that was clearly the biggest barrier with myself. And my husband had been wanting me to do this for a while. And I had worked um, through the years in a lot of different um, capacities. And I just, I didn't feel like I had up until when I started this, I, I, I was waiting for the time to be right, that my toolkit felt complete, that I could launch this and have all the tools in my toolkit or enough of the tools and know where to get the other ones. And finally, I, I put the business plan together and spoke with enough people. And it was a matter of getting over my own, my own fear of failure and just saying, okay, well, I have all the tools. I have, I, I'm not the strongest subject matter expert in every area out here. But you know what? At this point in my career, I know the right people there. And I work with them. And this is an amazing industry. It's a very supportive industry. I think there's a lot of IT industries that if you look at the, the little schema, they're not as supportive. This one, I can call up my competitors. We work together. We partner together. We team together. We, we sit on... Um, panels and symposiums and conferences and present one, you know, hand in hand. And so it's a very supportive industry. I mean, yes, it's still IT consulting and there still is a cutthroat component of running one's business. But at the end of the day, it's still a lovely industry to work in. And in order to just jump off the cliff and say, okay, I'm going to do this. I had my family behind me. I had friends behind me, but I had to get myself behind me. And, and so that was definitely the, the one, um, the one thing I was missing at the time that I finally decided I was ready to do. And it's great to hear about the collaboration that you just described. What was it like to work collaboratively with a team of colleagues to not only envision, but to build the business? Oh, gosh, it's still a lot of fun. I mean, because we've all worked together for a long time or known each other. I, I have been in and out of accessibility for basically 20 years. So we know each other and we know each other's strengths and we... And that being said, we also know each other's weaknesses, and that's actually a strength in and of itself because we know who to call or contact for exactly what, who's going to be the best for something, and who a client potentially needs to speak with about making their, their website or their mobile application or their hardware usable for somebody who is blind or you know, who ha who's a quadriplegic or whatever the specific request might be. At this point in our careers, those of us who've been around long enough, we know we know who the right person to go to uh, is, and and that's really powerful. And despite 
what you called and, and what is certainly true, the cutthroat nature of the uh, IT consulting business, uh, the nature of your work would seem to draw people in and look beyond themselves. Do you find that to be the case generally? Absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, making, making the world accessible is a much bigger picture than my my one you know than my company out there or than my competitors company we're all in it together for a much larger global goal and i think we all know it we all talk about it and as i've mentioned many times i look forward to the day where so there's so much technology there's so many products out there that are already accessible for everyone that my services are no longer needed i welcome that day to put me out of business mm -hmm. And are there people with specific disabilities whom you seek to assist through your services? Or do you, do you really run the gamut or do you focus on particular areas? So we, I mean, being an inclusive company and trying to make, make communication more inclusive for everyone, um, clearly we're not singling anyone out. Um, however, there are regulations, both U.S. and abroad, that look at making technology specifically, um, which is a huge wow. umbrella, accessible for everyone. But it does drill down into people who utilize certain types of assistive technology, which is the kind of technology such as that could be software or hardware that enables somebody with a disability to comfortably integrate their life with their computer, their phone, their um, television, whatever the technology might be. And it typically is people with sensory disabilities, such as people who are blind, low vision, deaf, hard of hearing, uh, deaf and blind, and mobility impaired. So those are your overarching ones. However, we do also look at people with um, different kinds of learning disabilities, uh, cognitive disabilities, et cetera. And that is also who we hire. So from our top down, we have people with disabilities all throughout, um, all throughout the company. And so we hire people who are blind and low vision and deaf and hard of hearing and mobility impaired and people who have hidden disabilities and cognitive disabilities. And so that's really important to us. Um, and so it's a, a very big practice what we preach. So that our team is comprised of people with disabilities who are having the same experiences as those of our clients or our clients' customers or constituents. And will you share with our listeners how vital and intelligent these people with disabilities are so often employers can't seem to get beyond the actual disability and see what an amazing contribution that these people can make to their organizations and companies. It's huge. Um, unfortunately, uh, people with disabilities are drastically underemployed across the board in the United States. and. We're just one small business, and we try to make a really big difference um, for the people that we hire. Uh, however, there are, there are offices at the United States Department of Labor. There is the Office of Disability Employment Policy, or ODEP, and they have several programs that they work with, such as the Partnership on Employment and Accessible Technology, the Job Accommodation Network, their um, employer assistance and resource network, among others, to really try and get the word out about why hiring people with disabilities makes good business sense. Uh, and it's often overlooked. 
and the biggest the biggest barrier that people still have about um, hiring people with disabilities is attitudinal and it comes down to hiring managers and so we actively all work to try and break down the attitudinal barriers that still sadly persist today. Which is really good to hear that that's a focus of your work. And what sort of technology do you work with? Um, How do you analyze, make improvements in accessibility? So that's where we're we're basically a a very typical IT um, auditing and testing firm. And so we work, we're auditing IT products such as everything that everyone has, websites, web applications, software applications, mobile applications, um, hardware like mobile devices, computers, laptops, servers, printers, back office, uh, large hardware products, kiosks, etc. And we're also actively auditing documents, which make up a lot, um, PDFs, PowerPoints, etc., and making them accessible and remediating them. And bas- our team of accessibility engineers, all of whom who have like computer science and uh, extensive information systems and IT backgrounds, far greater than what I have. As I say, I have to call my IT tech support when my computer isn't working, or I want to just throw it out the window. So I'm not the technical. Um, I don't bring the technical mojo to our team. Um, I I work with them, and they work in groups, uh, in teams of people with and without disabilities. So we always have a control group, and they audit to different regulations and standards out there. So there's various standards that the U.S. government has set forth, and that there's other international guidelines, and we audit these to these standards, and we have our own testing methodology. And so our accessibility gurus and engineers really take a look at that variety of IT devices and software and documents and webs websites and et cetera, and provide a comprehensive report to our clients that say, okay, here's the gap analysis, here's where your product meets the mark when it comes to accessibility, here are the shortcomings and the accessibility deficiencies, and here's our recommendations and remediation suggestions on how you can improve this product in the future. Um, and that's where we really get into the nitty-gritty of how best they can um, improve their IT product, website, document, so they can make it more accessible if they choose to. And does your team work with companies like Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon? Yes. Wonderful. And and are they? <laughs> and that was a quick answer, and I'm glad to hear it. There's no hesitation there. And and are they receptive? Oh my God, amazing, amazing. All of those companies um, have teams internally. Apple is one of those cutting edge ones. Um, they have, and Microsoft as well. Microsoft has a huge team. IBM has a huge team. And um, they are all working to make their products more accessible uh, for everybody. That's great to hear. Who are the, some of the clients that Accessibility Partners has worked with? Uh, how did you enhance their accessibility? So I, I can share about a couple of our clients. Um, I, I can't actually discuss um, the nitty-gritty of what we've done because for confidentiality reasons. Sure, just in, in general. But in general, we work with federal clients in the U.S. government, such as the Department of Health and Human Services, the Department of Labor, the Library of Congress, um, 
the General Services Administration, Center for Medicaid, Medicare Services, Department of Interior, so on and so on, kind of an alphabet soup um, of U.S. government federal agencies. And then on the private sector side, we worked with um, large companies um, from Amazon and Dell to um, Citrix and Crabtree and Avalyn and Kodak and McAfee and Intel and Symantec. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Um, we have amazing clients who do who create a lot of ama- like just incredible technology out there. And then we also work with some nonprofits and educational institutions and states because everybody has websites and everybody has documents and a lot of folks now have mobile apps and and they want to be able to have their IT products reach the 20% of the population that has a disability. Sure. So that's one in five of your listeners has a disability. Yeah. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate CSR interview with Managing Editor Robert Rim and Dana Marlowe, President and Co-Founder of Accessibility Partners. And can you single out a, a particular client and describe how you've enhanced their accessibility? Sure. Um, there's a lot of clients, so I'm trying to... Any one of the alphabet suit would do. <laughs> Any one of the... Um, we have a, uh, an incredible contract with the Library of Congress um, that we work. Uh, we did a year and a half long um, accessibility audit for them to really see where they were and what they can improve on um, and interviewed hundreds of people uh, from a qualitative approach as well as looking at what what products and services they currently have for their thousands of employees. Um, and we also have a contract with their, the Library of Congress's National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, where we provide um, support to uh, one of their programs that they have. And so it's, and it's so much fun. It, it's really, it's just an, a, a really fun area to be able to know that, and we're working behind the scenes. I mean, like people don't necessarily, people don't know us. We're, and it's, it's, that's great. Like they don't need to know that we're there behind the scenes working with our clients to make, to put our clients best accessibility foot forward. We would rather have, Hey, let, let our clients, you know, let them look good. Uh, we want to make them look good when it comes to accessibility. And so that's, we're, we work behind the scenes. And it's great to know that the government is really tuned into this despite the budget cuts and the general lack of awareness in in large pockets of the government. So to hear this, it's really great. Well, yeah, for sure. There, There is, um, Robert, there is a law um, called called Section 508, 
and it's a procurement law, which mandates that any time the government is purchasing, maintaining, using um, any kind of electronic and information communication technology, they need to look at buying the most accessible one. Mm -hmm. And so that is where we come in because it's a procurement law. So if they're going to be kind of spending any federal dollars on it, it has to be included. Yeah, and, and beyond the law, though, I'm sure you've seen that people are eager to actually implement these, aren't they? Oh, my gosh. Oh, for sure, yeah. for sure. I mean, with the government, a lot of the government employees do understand why we're doing what we're doing, and, um, and by now they do understand what we're doing. It's the government, it's the government contracting clients, so your large Fortune 500 corporations that are selling their, their software or their mobile app to the government or their product has a website and this is the first time that they have heard about it and that's where the light bulb goes on for all these new clients that we really enjoy working with because suddenly they really hadn't considered accessibility and, and that's so I mean you know obviously we wish everybody did but you know you can't it's like the elephant you know in the room how do you eat the elephant you know it's a one bite at a time kind of thing sure and beyond technical skills, how are your employees trained to understand those with disabilities and their need for accessibility? Well, because 85% of our staff have disabilities, mm -hmm. um, a lot of it just comes with being a person, you know, for many decades then with a disability and understanding that. Um, we do have internal training for our, client, for our employees that do not have disabilities where this might be new to them, but maybe they have other skill sets that we're hiring for. And when we're hiring... Because we can't, there's a lot of questions you can't ask, and we don't have some massively huge HR department or something like that. Um, we really want to see, you know, not only do they clearly have the right skills that we're looking for, for whether it's for a CFO or a bookkeeper or for a marketing and communications person, um, but we want to kind of kind of gauge their their just their level in of general of flexibility and empathy because people who are very empathetic and who also have high flexibility seem to be great to work with and totally get that working with a person with a disability is basically like working with anybody and that's what we we strive for is we forget that our team ha is made up and comprised of people with disabilities they are just our team. The disabilities are, are don't come in second or third. They are so far down the the laundry list of people's characteristics. It's and that's that is kind of how it should be. It's we're you know we're working with Joe, who's an amazing mechanical engineer, and these are his credentials, and this is what he is. Oh, he happens to be deaf, but so what? I mean, so like we communicate you know with him via text message and via other text channels and who cares you know that he can't hear like so we just we come up with other ways to have our conference calls so that it's accessible for everyone yeah and given your work and the work of others hopefully that laundry list gets washed away sooner than later that would be incredible yeah. that's where we would like to see it go and you mentioned empathy so how has empathy played a role in forming accessibility partners approach I I think that at, on one side it's it's a straight up entrepreneurial IT venture and that empathy is just a you know a, basically a I don't know if it's a characteristic or a but it, it it's you know just somebody's 
willingness and understand ability to really understand other people's feelings and put themselves in their shoes of, you know, what what kind of capacity they has to feel what somebody else might be experiencing from their framework. And that goes for starting a business, that goes for kids on the playground. I think that could be translated to in line at the grocery store and being impatient when the lines are long, you know, you know, very, you know, during the holiday season or I, I just think somebody's capacity to understand someone else's frame of reference is really important. And so that means patience sometimes. And it could mean that flexibility that I was talking about. And um, so I think that's kind of how it folds in to starting a business. And in addition to helping those with disabilities, how does Accessibility Partners incorporate corporate social responsibility, CSR, into mm -hmm. its business model? Um, so we we look at we look at it from a couple different ways. Um, one is, in order for us to hire more people with disabilities nationally, we have a huge telework model. So we're based on everyone can work remotely, and that can also mean that um, it this is more on the needs of one staff. But because people have disabilities, there sometimes are various medical medical issues. And we also give a very flexible work schedule so that if people do have uh, various doctor's appointments, medical needs, et cetera, they can do them on their own time. And everyone then can also, we can hire people who don't necessarily live in big cities with major mass transit, so which also may have more job opportunities. Um, so we can hire kind of the best of the the best of the best who happen to be then around the country, um, but they can telework. And as far as what we do to give back, um, we pro we provide a lot of accessibility information, hiring people with disabilities for companies um, for no charge. I mean, just because this is the right thing to do, because a lot of a lot of organizations just don't know about it, so we're happy to kind of spread the word. Um, we do a lot of um, other innovative kind of Im approaches as far as um, gym memberships or exercise or um, trying to encourage our, you know, our team to, to do stuff like that. Um, as far as, you know, environmental, we've had a couple different environmental programs um, so that we're not being wasteful and we're recycling. Um, and I'm sure, I know there's a ton of other corporate social responsibility related programs that we've done through the years. Um, I'm just trying to have some of them come to mind. While you're thinking about that, do you, do you generally find that your, your peers are aware of CSR and eager to give back as you've just described? Um, my peers in my industry or in, just, just other in, colleagues? In, in general, in business. Not necessarily uh, within the industry, but just in business. Obviously, you're well-traveled, well-connected. So in, in business, do you yeah, feel Yeah, I, I think for sure, definitely in my industry, in business as a whole, I think it really depends. I, I know a lot of kind of old-school businesses that operate on a much older model and approach, and their methodology is more outdated than something like mine. Um, and so, 
Um, I think that um, it, it definitely... A lot of companies and federal agencies, again, because I'm here in the Washington, D.C. area, a lot of them do have a heads-down focus on some CSR programs, for sure in the government. There's a lot that the government does a lot. They work with a lot of nonprofits, and they operate a lot of internal as well as external programming um, here in D.C. because we hear about it all the time. Um, in the business world, I think a lot of the big businesses do it. I think there's also some a lot, many different kinds of programs and awards that some of the companies can receive for doing stuff like that. But um, there are still many companies that sadly don't do it as much. Would it be fair to say that given the, um, the obviously the societal benefits, but also often the direct benefit to the bottom line, would it be fair to say that more and more companies are moving toward uh, being aware of CSR and, and making that happen within their own business models? Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. I, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah, which is, which is wonderful to be able to recognize. So getting back to accessibility partners, what does the future hold for you, and uh, what would you ideally like to see happen? So while we have done an enormous amount of business with regards to um, the IT space, so companies that produce software and hardware, what we have seen a shift in trends is now that accessibility um, has become more mainstream and the baby boomers are aging and 20% of the population has a disability and it's only increasing, we have noticed more and more companies in the private sector and the commercial side that don't necessarily do business with the U.S. federal government or state governments who are wanting to make their websites or mobile apps or PDFs accessible. And I foresee the next um, five years really moving heavily in that direction on the commercial side. And are there areas of society uh, or perhaps internationally that you'd like to penetrate? Um, tourism. Mm -hmm. Tourism um, is a big one um, nationally and as well really as overseas. Um, that is one area, as well as um, the entertainment arena. I think while there have been motions to make more leisure and entertainment that part of society accessible, it's not all the way there. There are some some museums and some museum exhibits that are accessible, uh, accessibility friendly and um, for people with disabilities. And Major League Baseball is now accessible, and BBC is really accessible, and Comcast has made ways. So, like, those are some examples of, like, TV and, you know, um, national pastime that have gone the way of accessibility. But there's a lot more that we can do. Hmm. And to conclude our time together, Dana, uh, despite your crazy schedule, as you've referenced, uh, obviously you've got a family, uh, you run an organization, you travel. And yet you make time to volunteer uh, for the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation for the American Cancer Society. Can you talk about that, what it's like to, despite everything you've got going on, uh, how you still make time to volunteer for these organizations and how other organizational leaders can, can tie into that mindset? I think it just comes down to prioritizing and really sometimes time slicing one's day and schedule so that you can get a little bit of everything done. Um, and so obviously 
yes, I feel like, yes, I'm definitely busy, but so are you, Robert, and so is everyone I come in contact with. And it's just prioritizing the busy to make it best work so that you can give back and you can feel good about, you know, not only what you're doing, you know, on a day-to-day basis with your, your career, but as well as clearly having time for, you know, one's, one's family and friends and, and social engagements. But trying to, trying to give back and share a little bit of that experience or subject matter expertise or rolling up one's sleeves and, and just donating one's time to whatever hands-on cause is needed. Um, I mean, it feels good, you know, and, and who doesn't want to feel good? And in turn, it gives you energy and ultimately makes you a better leader, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, and you can learn from everywhere you go. So I, I volunteer at a lot of different places and I can learn best practices and what other people are doing. And um, as I go out and try to launch this nonprofit um, uh, of, of my own, Support the Girls, I'm able to tie back into the what works best and um, best practice that best practices that I have seen at other nonprofits that that I volunteered at or boards and committees that I've sit on uh, that I've sat on and take some of that and be able to build that into um, support the girls as I grow this. So I think it all it all kind of interrelates and it goes full circle. Wonderful to recognize. And Dana, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. The best way to reach Dana and support Accessibility Partners is through AccessibilityPartners.com. Click on the webpage links above this podcast for further details. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.